This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 158th episode, we revisit Martin Scorsese's gangster classic, Goodfellas, from 1990, written and directed by Martin Scorsese, co-written by Nicholas Pileggi, starring Robert De Niro as James Conway, Ray Liotta as Henry Hill, Joe Pesci as Tommy DeVito, Lorraine Bracco as Karen Hill, Paul Sorvino as Paul Cicero, Frank Sivero as Frankie Carbone, Tony Darrow as Sonny Buns, Mike Starr as Frenchie, Frank Vincent as Billy Batts, Chuck Lowe as Morris Kessler, Frank DeLeo as Tuddy Cicero, Henny Youngman as himself, Gina Mastrojacomo as Janice Rossi, and Catherine Scorsese as Tommy's mother. Goodfellas was released on September 19, 1990. It made an estimated $47.1 million on a budget of $25 million. Critics were overwhelmingly positive, with some saying Goodfellas is easily one of the year's best films. The film was ranked the best of 1990 by Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel, and Peter Travers. And in a poll of 80 film critics, Goodfellas was named the best film of the year by 34 of them. Director Martin Scorsese was chosen as the year's best director in 45 of the 80 ballots. Goodfellas was nominated for Best Picture, Director for Scorsese, Supporting Actors for Bracco, Adapted Screenplay, and Film Editing, winning for Best Supporting Actor for Joe Pesci. Goodfellas is number 94 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years 100 Movies list and moved up to number 92 on its AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition from 2007. In June 2008, the AFI put Goodfellas at number two on their list of the AFI's 10 top 10 in the gangster category. In 2012, the Motion Picture Editors Guild listed Goodfellas as the 15th best edited film of all time based on a survey of its membership. In the 2012 Sight and Sound polls, it was ranked the 48th greatest film ever made in the director's poll. Goodfellas inspired director David Chase to make the HBO television series The Sopranos. He told Peter Bogdanovich, Goodfellas is a very important movie to me, and Goodfellas really plowed that. I found that movie very funny and brutal, and it felt very real. And yet that was the first mob movie that Scorsese ever dealt with a mob crew, as opposed to, say, The Godfather, which there's something operatic about it, classic, even the clothing and the cars. You know, I mean, I always think about Goodfellas when they go to the mother's house that night when they're eating. You know, when she brings out her painting, that stuff is great. I mean, The Sopranos learned a lot from that. Indeed, the film shares a total of 27 actors with The Sopranos, including Rocco, Sirico, Imperioli, Pellegrino, Lip, and Vincent, who all had major roles in Chase's HBO series. Goodfellas currently holds a 96% rating on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, 91 score on Metacritic, and a 4.4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, I really don't remember much from reviewing this. This was our fifth ever episode back in March of 2020, and I think we can probably just say that we were in a much different place, but 
Let's start here. This is known by a lot of people as probably the seminal work of the best American director of the last 30 years, or maybe even 50 years, going back into the 70s. Is he the most important director of the last 50 years? Well, first of all, you have to define important and what constitutes important. If you're talking about impact on society and pop culture, no, it's Spielberg. He's had more influence on pop culture by far than Scorsese. I think from a fan attention standpoint, yes, but if you're going from an importance level as to all of the people he's directly influenced that have become the major filmmakers. Let's just say this. I think that Spielberg in a way is kind of like Bill Belichick. He's really good as a head coach, but he doesn't have a lot of disciples that really have come off of him and that you could give a lot of credit. Whereas I think there are a lot of direct descendants of Martin Scorsese's lineage. And therefore, I think by attribute, yes, his films are important and he's got some all-time classics that we have yet to discuss on the show. But if you look at somebody like Quentin Tarantino, he seems like an acolyte of sorts of the movies that Scorsese's been making since Taxi Driver. Okay, well, there's your there's your fundamental problem, which is you've now changed it from important to the most influential within the industry. I think it's the same thing. No, I don't. I mean, important is it you you just throw out the term important director and what you're talking about is the most influential within the industry. Okay, there I could honestly say that you have an argument to be made. But as far as the most important and the one that's that's uh, been able to draw or help refine certain genres within film? No, I I would go back again and say it's Spielberg. I'm not talking about other people. I'm talking about how things were crafted, what types of movies were being done. I mean, Scorsese's primary, I hate to, you know, I'm not trying to minimize it, but his films all have a certain feel. They're violent and they're profane for a large portion. A large part of American society is put off by both. Okay, so he does not have a broad appeal. He has a broad appeal to cinemaphiles who are used to that and people who love that grit, but I don't okay, think... Okay, if I, you want... If you want to make the argument that Spielberg is the most important director, then I'll just stack films against each other. Because yes, while Jaws has taken up a considerable space in our top 10, and we've done more of his movies than any other director up to this point, that being Steven Spielberg, how many movies of Steven Spielberg have we done post-1998? In that time... Martin Scorsese has put out at least four different films that are all a hundred plus million dollar grocers. And I can't imagine that Spielberg has done much other than Catch Me If You Can and maybe Bridge of Spies. I liked Ready Player One a lot more than a lot of critics did, but is that something that's like classic? Whereas Wolf of Wall Street, you've got The Departed. You've got Shutter Island. He's got plenty of films since the year 2000. And I still think 
that his outsized influence and reverence within the industry as well as moviegoers is significant in a way that Spielberg's has seemed to fade a little bit over time. Okay. When you look at the broader range of what we're talking about, I mean, Spielberg has done a spy thriller. He's done a war film. He's done a musical. He's done a comedy. He has done a homage to his heritage in Schindler's List. He's had a broader range of of experiences, whereas Scorsese has been within a certain lane. And there I'll just generally disagree with you. While Spielberg has touched on a bunch of different genres, and I will admit that, Scorsese is not like a one-note person. Yes, he's most known for some of his gangster films and some of his most violent, but he has a Wall Street movie, he has a horror film, he has a sports movie. Yes, he's done a lot of crime films, and he's done a lot of dramas. What sports film? Oh, Raging Bull? Not only Raging Bull, but The Color of Money. Okay. So he did a religious film? Don't tell religious people that. Well, he also did Silence, which is technically a religious film. Yeah. And I know that he's kind of got another crime movie of sorts coming out, but realistically, of things that are not superhero movies right now, what is being made other than horror films and crime films? I don't know. I I, I don't understand. I, I don't understand the fascination with certain things. I don't know. I, You know that I have a special place for Sir Stephen and... Obviously, this podcast has served him well, and we have yet to visit some of his movies that still will be coming up. I think Schindler's is on the list for later this year, and I still think that's his best movie, if not his most important film. But even so, I don't think that you can ignore the place that Scorsese has within the industry and within some of the most popular directors of the last 30 to 40 years. And by extension thus making him a much more essential and important figure within movie-making and movie-going culture. Okay. I, again, I think it comes down to how you define what is the most important director. Well, yeah, that's fine. But I don't think that there's anything separate from most important and influential. Okay. I would disagree, as, as I already have, so... So one of the things that we didn't visit on the initial podcast, I'm pretty sure, because this question has popped up a little bit later than some of our most original episodes, what is your relationship to this movie? I knew of it. I did not see it when it was released. I think I saw it in bits and pieces over time. Um, And I think the first time I watched it all the way through was for the show back in 2020. So I've watched it coming or before this week, I had watched it probably three, maybe four times. And it's been an odd road. It's been kind of an up and down type of journey for me because I loved the Godfather movies as a kid. And I always thought of this as a more inferior version of those movies where those are much more Shakespearean and they have a high level of drama and 
I don't know. The the ebbs and flows of that seem more momentous. This film was so against type for those movies. And I know that gangster films is not a genre that you normally care for. And it's part of the reason that I probably didn't have as much of a good feeling about some of these movies because you've shaped some of my viewpoints on this, at least early on when I was kind of getting into adult movies, let's say. I loved The Departed, and that should have been a reason why I should have additionally loved this movie, but there was always something seemingly inaccessible for me with this movie. I remember the first time hearing about this movie, there was a Godfather marathon or something on like AMC, and they had Rudy Giuliani on to dish about this. Yes, this is like before Rudy Giuliani went like, off the deep end, and back when he was still America's mayor type shit. This is probably mid-2000s. But anyway, I do remember him doing some marathon hosting and talking about his favorite gangster movies because he was a representative of New York, he'd been against organized crime, etc., etc. So that's the first time I heard of it. But I've always just never quite gotten why this movie was so popular, especially compared to the Godfather movies. And strangely enough, I don't know why this time, but the movies seemed to start to click for me. And I found it much more enjoyable. And I actually went back and watched it a second time before, because I had the actual time to do that instead of trying to wedge it in in Monday and Tuesday night before we record. But... For whatever reason, I think I've finally started to understand why people are obsessed with this movie. Well, maybe you can explain it to me because I still don't get it. Okay. I mean, part of it's probably because I'm very jaded. Yeah, I get that. And so I never saw the the romance or the romanticism or the whatever you want to call it in this lifestyle. I just... (laughs) Don't get it yet. I don't know why you're so foreign to a lot of these gangster films. I I really don't because while, yes, they're violent and they're criminal activity and the rest of it, there is a larger aspect of what I guess is relatable to America even within these. And I think that's why they're popular is, is it's a extrapolated version of a lot of themes that Americans are dealing with, even within or or things that appeal to Americans within these types of stories where they can be somewhat placed in a fantasy of sorts. It's kind of the same way that wall street movies are appealing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, or any film where it's the super rich, because Americans like live vicariously through certain aspects of these films. I would and, say super privileged. Yes, super rich fits into that, but I want to broaden that a little bit. Okay. So, but yes, it's a vicarious lifestyle or or living of that lifestyle. And I, I guess for some people, this is enticing. I, I don't see it, so I don't have the same connection to it. And it's fine. You know, other people do great. Have at it. You can have my seat at the theater. So you're really not going to be in line for Killers of the Flower Moon this year? 
with its estimated four hour runtime. <laughs> but that that is a a crime thriller. It is a police investigation and a mystery to some extent. So I'm going to be much more inclined to watch that than just the raw gangster film. And it just seemed like every third scene, Joe Pesci is just without reason killing somebody. Okay, so then let me ask you, what do you actually think this movie is about? Achieving a lifestyle, a level of respect that you do not believe you could get any other way but through this vehicle. Hill comes from a nothing family in a nothing neighborhood. And the way he sees that he's going to be important and to have affluence and to be respected is by joining the mob. Or you could insert mob, you could say street gang, whatever. That's ultimately what the reason a lot of people drawing these gangs is, is for that level of self-respect, that those connections the uh, ability to advance. And that's ultimately what these, this film is about, showing how Henry Hill goes about trying to achieve things. You know, I mean, he didn't have to work real hard. He just had to put himself out there and be willing to do some pretty heinous things in order to accomplish his goals and desires. Well, I think you're, you're tiptoeing around what I think the movie's about. You're talking about the rags to riches aspect of things. And I think that's there's a reason that song is playing when you get the famous line from his or for as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster that opens up the film. But at the same time, I think this movie and like a lot of Scorsese movies is about reward and consequence. There's a very Catholic aspect to everything that he does. He's always within that prism of sin and forgiveness. And so because of that, I think a lot of the movie is through the light of Henry Hill is an ambitious kid from the other side of the tracks who wants to get ahead. And he romanticizes this notion of the mob because no one in their ranks is touchable. They can talk to anybody, they can do anything they want, they can steal from the airport, they live rich lives without any consequences. And the reason why the Tommy character is important to that is he can get away with everything. One of the things that I think is important about this movie is they keep taking more and more and more risks as time goes along. And eventually the consequences have to catch up. You think it's about the point where he's going to go to jail, but he doesn't really face consequences by being in jail. He's just locked up, but he gets leisure time all over the place, and he's able to freely do whatever kind of drugs he wants, sells whatever drugs he needs in order to keep supporting his family. So there's no consequence there. Really, the only consequences start to pile on when he's caught for drugs by surrounding himself with some rather, you know, crappy criminals by comparison to the people that he used to work with. And it finally bites him in the ass to the point where all of his friends abandon him. But up until that point, he's done pretty much everything on the spectrum of what you would call the most 
heinous criminal acts short of probably rape that you could think of. He's committed domestic violence. He's committed battery. He's committed assault. He's committed grand larceny. He's murdered people. I mean, literally every possible thing that you could think of. And even at the end, he avoids consequence by just taking the easy route out and ratting on all of his friends. Yeah, I, I, I think we're talking the same thing, but just in different ways. Well, I think where I had the problems with this movie is always the second half. It's why I've had such difficulty with like Citizen Kane. There's the rise in the first half, and the second half is the fall. One of the great things about the Godfather movies is, is the Godfather Part 1 is all rise, and the Godfather Part 2 is all fall. And you can like both as separate entities to each other, but when it's contained in the same movie, it always challenged me as a viewer in a way that I guess the Godfather movies didn't. That's why I always liked Godfather Part 1 as opposed to Godfather Part 2. I've never really liked The Fall. I always liked The Rise. But eventually, once you get into that last half an hour of the film, and the helicopter's following him, and there's all the kinetic action. I just don't think that that part of the film is supposed to be likable at first. You have to have multiple viewings to kind of get what you need to out of that scene and that sequence and understand exactly who these people were. The first half of the movies is incredibly energetic and fun And it's enjoyable watching, even as they commit these terrible acts, all the fun that they seem to be having just being on top of the world. But it's when they start to get knocked off that it just takes a dour turn. Your anti-heroes seem to be mired in a lot of consequence for once. And it just makes the film a little bit more challenging. So... Why don't we give everybody just a little bit more background on the film? Do you have a plot summary ready for us? Yes. Goodfellas is a gritty and gripping crime drama that follows the rise and fall of Henry Hill, a young man seduced by the allure of the mob life. Set in the bustling and dangerous world of organized crime in New York City, the film takes us on a journey through the inner workings of the mafia with its codes of honor, loyalty, and violence. We witness the glamorous lifestyle that comes with being a member of the family, as well as the price one must pay for crossing the line. With sharp writing, powerful performances, and a masterful direction, Goodfellas delivers a cinematic experience that is both thrilling and thought-provoking, asking us to question the morality of those who live outside the law and the consequences of pursuing power and wealth at any cost. Thank you. Did you know? According to Henry Hill, whose life was the basis for the book and film, Joe Pesci's portrayal of Tommy DeSimone was 90 to 99% accurate, with one notable exception. The real Tommy DeSimone was massively built. Did you know? According to Nicholas Pileggi, some mobsters were hired as extras to lend authenticity to scenes. The mobsters gave Warner Brothers fake social security numbers, and no one knows how they received their paychecks. Did you know? Martin Scorsese first got wind of Nicholas Pileggi's book, Wise Guy, when he was handed the galley proofs. 
Although Scorsese had sworn off making another gangster movie, he immediately cold-called the writer and told him, I've been waiting for this book for my entire life. Pileggi replied, I've been waiting for this phone call for my entire life. Did you know? According to Ray Liotta, Martin Scorsese was so involved in every detail of the cast's wardrobe that he tied Liotta's tie himself to make sure it was accurate for the film's setting. Did you know? The painting that Joe Pesci's character's mother brings out was actually painted by wise guy author Nicholas Pileggi's mother. Did you know? After Joe Pesci's mother saw the film, she told him the movie was good, then asked him if he had to curse so much. <laughs> Did you know? Fuck and its derivatives are used 321 times, an average of 2.04 per minute. Joe Pesci says about half of them. <laughs> the script called for the word to be used 70 times, but much of the dialogue was improvised during shooting, and the expletives piled up. At the time of the film's release, it had the most profanity of any movie in history. As of 2020, it's number 15, with The Wolf of Wall Street from 2013, also a Martin Scorsese movie, at number three, a movie we will cover in a couple of months. What's number one? That I don't know. For a while when I was growing up, it was the South Park movie. Ah. That was like over 500, I think. Okay. But I don't know for sure. I should have probably looked that up. And with that, we'll take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the film that won John Huston his only Best Director Oscar, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1948. Written and directed by John Huston, starring Humphrey Bogart and Walter Huston. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. So, we will jump right from here into the Stanley rubric. And if you have not listened to one of our revisit episodes before, you might be wondering where the best performance and all the other categories that are normally in this section are. You can go back to the original episode and listen, although they don't have as detailed of a description and all of the categories that we've normally done. It has most of them, and uh, you can probably pick up some tidbits from the first time that we did the show. But we're going to compare and contrast against our original scores and see if we were correct or wrong. So the original legacy score for this one was an 8.5. Did you think we got it right or wrong, Dad? I think the legacy's grown even in the last two years. I mean, so many people put this on a pedestal. So on the industry, I think it's considered a seminal work by Scorsese. And for the public, I mean, it, it has spoken to new generations every decade that this film has been out. So there's new audience always being developed. I Actually, I think I, I'm going to go with the industry with a 4.5. And I'm going to go with the public with a five because people who love this film, and there are a lot of them, really love this film. So I think we were a little low. I agree. We were a little low. I don't know if it's taken on any more significance than it had, but given that this is the third listed film behind the two Godfather films as like the quintessential gangster movies, I don't think you start 
any gangster movie list without this being in the top three. I do agree with your score, even though we had our categories a little bit flipped. I went a five for the industry. I think this is a widely well-regarded film within the industry. I think most people consider it to be Scorsese's best movie. I don't agree with that. We will revisit what I think is his best movie later sometime this year in Taxi Driver. But I only went a 4.5 for the audience just because of the element that you introduced a little bit earlier. Not everybody, like my mother, is going to want to watch a violent, profane gangster movie. And the people that love this really love it, and there are a lot of people that really love this movie, but there's also a few detractors that this is just not going to be their movie. So I don't think it's as universal. So I also have a 9.5, so the math is easy on this one. You know, I wonder, and I'll just pose this question. It's got me thinking a little bit. When we do a revisit, should we come to a consensus score instead of an average? Maybe that would be better. Would be more accurate. Well, especially because with with a few of the movies that we're, we're doing, yes, the average usually works out without ha- us having to do too much debate. But the consensus and trying to compromise and come to an agreement on things, I think might be an interesting wrinkle on doing a revisit. Yeah. Well, I suppose we could test it out in these next categories and see if there's a... Let's just put it this way. You convince me to flip the other way on Legacy. In what? So you are going to go and match my two yes. sets instead of going your original? I mean, it still arrives at a 9.5. Yeah, I know. But I mean, I think you made sense and I would I would agree with you. If we're trying to reach a consensus on that category, that's where I would go. Okay. So then we'll go to Impact Significance. The original score on this was an 8. I have it slightly higher. I don't have it as high in the moment as I did in Legacy because listening to some of the history of this movie and Martin Scorsese's career, he'd made some very important films, but nothing that was a commercial hit until he started making this movie and other movies in the 90s. So this was followed by Cape Fear, and then he did Casino, both massively overperformed for what they were at the time. But this was his first like big commercial movie. And so while it had a lot of backing by an audience, it was still a little bit limited compared to the audiences that would go out and rush to see The Departed or Wolf of Wall Street or Shutter Island any of these later movies where he was seen as a much better master of his craft, that he became the commercial guy as well as the auteur. Up until this point, I don't think there was the recognition of him as being this master filmmaker by the general public. And so I think he was well regarded within the industry. I do question a little bit, given that... I think going into Oscars night, if I have the history correct, he was the odds-on favorite to win Best Director, and we gave it to Kevin Costner and Dances with Wolves. But that controversy also helped drive up the notoriety of this film to a way that I think actually increases its legacy. So I'm not even going to hold that against it in a way that some of the other movies that didn't end up winning Oscars 
we hold that against them. I think in the moment, I'm going to go for a five for the industry, given how much critical praise there was for this movie and that a lot of people felt it should have won Best Picture and a four for the audience because I don't think they were quite on board yet with what Martin Scorsese would become as far as influence and importance for each of his movies when they came out later on in this decade. So that's a nine overall. Okay, I'm a little bit lower. I'll agree with your score on the public because, yeah, it did, it did twice its budget, but it wasn't like a blockbuster. So I think it's grown in stature as time has gone by. As far as the industry, critics loved it. It was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards, but just the simple fact that only Pesci ended up getting one I have to give it a little bit down. I can't give it a perfect five for that reason. So I wanted the 4.5 because I, I think it, it, I don't think this is one of the better performances from, from De Niro. Uh, Ray Liotta is, was, was good, but there was just always something about Ray Liotta's performance in this and any other film I ever saw that I just never really quite bought into on a scale of one to 10 as an actor, he was always a consistent seven to eight. There was never like a performance that I ever saw his. I go, wow, that was great. And so I think that that's part of the reason why the, the film doesn't hold a perfect five for me is because there's, I, I see when I watch it and every time I rewatch it, I see a few more flaws in some of the, uh, the characters and the acting and such. So, uh, and I think that's what the industry picked up on. So I went with a 4.5 for an 8.5 overall. I'm not sure I agree. Yes. Compared to like taxi driver and raging bull, this is not as great of an acting performance by De Niro, but there are a lot of subtleties to his performance that are quite leading, even though he's the third lead in this movie. I think Lorraine Bracco was fantastic, and I just vehemently disagree with you on Leota in this movie. I think the more often you watch it, the more I get out of his performance, because he just seems kind of a wet-behind-the-ears kid all the time. He seems like he's almost this lost boy trying to fit in and realize his ambition. You see, early on in the film, when they open up the trunk... And he's just got this look of almost intense horror on his face. I think he he definitely knows how to hold his own in most of these scenes where he's dealing with people that are well above him as far as the level to which they are committing crimes. And the more he just gets ingratiated into this world, I don't know. I, I just, I find his performance to be actually a strength of the movie in a way that, uh, you don't get necessarily the first time or two that watching this film. Okay. I, I can understand that, but that being said, I I just, I don't know if I can hold the lack of recognition by the Oscars in the moment against it completely. That's the other thing. I, I understand where your point is. I find it a little difficult given how much, most people have revisited those Oscars and said that was a mistake. Okay. So 
as far as the, we're, we're agreeing on the public, it's the industry. So do you want to just split between them? I could go down a little or go up a little and be comfortable with it. So let's see, you're at an 8.5 and I'm at a 9. So that would be an 8.75? Yeah. Yeah, I'm comfortable with that because I don't want to come all the way down as a result of it, but I honestly see the validity of, of your argument with it that there was a little bit of a hang-up yet with the movie in a way that I think it's grown in legacy since because we're more familiar with Scorsese movies in a way that I guess the general population was not at that point. Critics were. They knew how to understand and how to handle these movies, but especially because I think some of the downfall of the movie was not as rewarding for audiences. It took multiple viewings for people to kind of warm to it in a way that lends itself to legacy, but not impact. So I can go with an 8.75, even though that technically is just agreeing to the average of our two scores. Well, (laughs) yes, I guess. Novelty. We had a seven on this one originally. Yeah. I don't know about you. I, I feel that we were too low and I actually went with a nine. I can give you my reasons, but what was your analysis? I mean, it's just a more modern version of getting into organized crime. It's it's kind of like Godfather 2 updated. Boy, I don't see that at all. Well, it's how you get involved in it. I didn't think it was that novel. I mean, you got White Heat, you got all kinds of other crime films, how they get involved. I didn't think it was that novel. I had a 7.5 for novelty. See, this is why I don't mind the compromise on the last one, because I'm going to fight you on this one. I had it at a nine because the editing, the pace, the structure, a lot of people that I've listened to and I respect have compared this to like being on cocaine and that Scorsese basically made the movie to be like on cocaine. That the initial part, especially if you're addicted, is really great, really fast Everything is just energetic and fun and whatever else. And the further on you go and the more bumps you hit, the worse it's going to be. And the consequences eventually catch up to you until you just kind of drop off at the end and everything just feels paranoid. I think from using all of the pop classics, which has been ripped off multiple times over, to... The tracking shot that's very famous for the entrance to the Copacabana to, you know, all the little stylistic flourishes that are a part of this movie that people have been ripping off for the last 30 years. I just think it's a much more novel film. And even though you don't connect to it as much, this is something that is about a low level guy that's not a made guy. That's not a part of the upper echelons of the mafia. The Godfather's all about the Don. And his family. It's not about, you know, the third stringer off in the corner that's doing a drug racket. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So it's focusing on more of the micro life of somebody that's in the mob as opposed to the Shakespearean machinations of a succession plan for the Don who built something and has to hand it over to one of his sons. Or the brash nature of a Jimmy Cagney film 
it's not even Scarface because it's really not about the drug trade exactly. Okay, the subject matter isn't that unique. The situation itself is not that unique. I just don't see the 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 level of a novelty that you have at nine. With the difficulty of the names being changed, this is the only gangster story that's actually based on real people. Okay. I, I, I can go up from my 7.5 because when you stop to think about it, as the scene is starting to spin and Hill's life is spinning out of control, the scenes and the cuts are much shorter and crisper to uh, make them more disorienting and to increase the tension and anxiety you have that you're feeling his. So I'll go up a point at 8.5, but boy, I'm having a hard time with nine. You're going to have to justify it to me. And I haven't heard it yet. Again, the scoring, as far as the implementation of pop music Overplayed. I mean, yes, it's become the staple of Scorsese movies, but hearing White Room drop as De Niro's basically trying to figure out, okay, which of these guys do I need to bump off so that I can make sure I'm protected? Or I already mentioned Rags to Riches starting up as he's saying, you know, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a gangster. And the influence of that, that's been ripped off from everything as far as like Michael Bay movies all the way up till superhero movies with the James Gunn guardians of the galaxy soundtracks. I think as far as the dialogue, I mean, I already mentioned what is widely considered at worst, one of the top five TV shows of all time that directly takes its cues from this movie, the Sopranos. (sighs) Now, maybe you could put that into legacy as opposed to novelty, but I think that David Chase taking cues such as the scene where they're burning down the bar and he's talking to him about the woman he's trying to bang and so he needs Henry to go out with him in order to uh, help facilitate, you know, said banging. I do think that's something that wasn't in the Godfather movies. You'd never heard Michael, hey, go on a double date with me so I can bang Kay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I guess I can acquiesce to your 8.5, but I, I I do think this should be higher. But even uh, so, well, we've raised it enough. All right, classicness. We originally had a 9. I know you've had difficulty with this category pretty much for the last 10 weeks straight, as you've mentioned it every time. I don't know what to say about this. I mean, given that it's about, for the most part, real events... And the violence is seemingly accurate. I don't really hold that against the movie so much. And all the typical things that you're saying about inclusion, because they're things that happened in real life, such as, you know, the domestic violence or the battery or the assault or anything else, because it's describing a lifestyle that actually was, it doesn't necessarily seem excessive. It seems accurate. Yeah. And I do think that the pacing and the way this makes people still feel, I think that's one of the reasons that this movie is held up as much as it is. So I think we might have gotten this right. 
I think we did. Yeah, I I know some people might argue for a, a full ten, but no. I just don't. Th- the one the one drawback that I have is that I don't think it was really ahead of its time necessarily. It was reflecting on a period that had been before. And so that's the only thing that I don't think that it was really trying to dig into issues of where the country was going or where organized crime was going in a way that even like the Sopranos did. And so that would be the one drawback as far as classicness is I just don't think it was ahead of its time or is necessarily quite at the level of timelessness yet, at least for me. Okay. So we agree on nine. All right. We'll go with a nine. Rewatchability. I have to imagine your score is going to be low. I don't know if we could come to a consensus on this one, but the original score we had was a six. All I'm going to say is, is I came up to an 8.5 because I feel I finally get it. I understand why this movie is rewatchable. And the fact that I watched it twice for this because I wanted to go back and rewatch it again, raised it to a certain status. It's not quite among like I would much rather watch The Departed multiple times as I have more fun with that movie. And that was kind of my first interaction with Scorsese. But I'll go with an 8.5 right now. I stood hard fast at the six. I've watched it twice and that's enough for me. I don't know if I'm going to ever be able to come to a consensus on this one. I'm probably not. I mean, because this is the most subjective. Yeah, at least with the way that we've done it now, as opposed to how we started out. Okay, so my standard is a seven is something that I would watch again. All right, maybe I could go up to a 6.5 or even a seven, but I can't go any more than that. Well, right now the average would be at a 7.25. All right, I'll go up to a seven because if it's on, I'll watch it. I'm not going to turn it off. I'm not going to walk away. I'm just going to put the 7.25. Okay. And just average it out. So originally the audience score was a 9.7 because we only used Rotten Tomatoes at that point in time. We have added in Google now as a separate part of the audience score. So we had a little bit more well-rounded. The 97% still remains at Rotten Tomatoes but we had a 90% for Google users, so that drops to a 9.35. So to recap the categories, we uh, changed our legacy score from an 8.5 to a 9.5. We went from an 8 for impact significance to an 8.75. We went from novelty at 7 to an 8.5. And we went from, or we stayed the same at classicness at 9. And then for rewatchability, we raised it from a 6 to a 7.25. Audience score is the only one that slightly dropped from a 9.7 to a 9.35. The original score on this one was a 48.2. Our new total score will be 52.35. And that would currently place it on our list between The Matrix and Groundhog Day. Okay. Let's take our second break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, 
Starting in May, I'm partnering with Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast to start a special series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stanley rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? We do. Uh, this week we lost Judy Farrell, 84, American actress, was in the TV show MASH, uh, also screenwriter for Port Charles, uh, Fame, the TV show, and The Kid from Nowhere. She was the ex-wife of Mike Farrell, who played B.J. Honeycutt on the TV show MASH. Um, they got divorced while the show was in progress. She remained as an actress playing one of the nurses despite their divorce. Both, I think, ended up marrying other people shortly afterwards. I'd read she only had an eight-episode run as a nurse. Okay, well, I mean, maybe then she did leave because of the circumstances. But Mike Farrell uh, has been married for like 35 years or something like that, or 32 years, something, to, uh, what's her name, Um, Fabre. I can't remember. She was a... She was one of the the teen stars in the Frankie and and uh, Frankie Valley and Annette Funicello movies. Uh, Annette Fa- uh, Fabre. And so we remember her here for her contributions to TV and movies with a moment of silence in her honor. Thank you. Remaining questions. If you didn't want people ratting on you, how about you keep everyone happy and taken care of instead of constantly murdering everyone? Because it's too hard to keep everybody happy. Okay, but there's a direct comparison I have because I grew up a bit with The Sopranos. When people were in prison, they took care of their wives and their kids while they were in there so they didn't have the urge to rat on them. In this movie, they don't. To me, that just leaves you incredibly vulnerable. I I got it, but that's... The only thing I can tell you is, is that if you've ever read Machiavelli, given the choice between being loved and feared, it's better to be loved, but the person that you are, you know, that's being loved has control of that. Fear, you control. And it's the same way in this circumstance. I mean, if they live or die, it is in your control. And whether they want to be happy with what you're providing, you have no control over that. You can just keep funneling money and it doesn't necessarily protect you. So the question that everybody asks, should this have won over Dances with Wolves and Scorsese yes. gotten his Best Director Oscar before The Departed? Yes, Dances with Wolves was about as boring and pointless a film as I can think of it. It was more, it was more about let's revisit our lingering uh, sense of guilt over how we treated native Americans. And let's give the golden boy his just desserts for trying to redefine or try to re explore the, basically horrendous 
way we treated Native Americans in the 19th century. And it just struck a political chord with uh, the Academy, which is why it, it ended up winning. It's not like it was the great film of all time or even that year. The movie is like three and a half hours long. Yes, could have been down to an hour and a half and still wouldn't have made a difference. Well, I think you could take the first 45 minutes and the last 45 minutes out, and it's a much better film, to be honest. But it's like the year that we went with Crash over Brokeback Mountain. Because we didn't want to be audacious and pick the gay film when we uh, hadn't quite wrestled with all of the intricacies of that argument politically with ourselves, we went with the awkward race relations movie that really didn't make us feel too bad about ourselves. Yeah. The white savior movies tend to end up doing a lot better. I mean, is it really that strange that Dances with Wolves won over Goodfellas the year after Driving Miss Daisy won over a not-nominated Do the Right Thing? Yeah. I mean, this was the time and place. Like, I can't be upset with the Oscars for going with the easy play, but in hindsight, the Oscars gets it right maybe one out of every four years. Yeah. Yes, I also can't argue too much with the way things played out because The Departed was the best movie of that year in a arguably weak year. And I love that movie, and I'm glad that it won a bunch of awards. I still don't know how Leo wasn't nominated for Best Actor for that movie. I can't argue with what the results ended up being. He still got his Oscar. For grunting for two hours. What? For grunting oh, for Leo two hours. Got, yeah, I wasn't talking about Leo. I was talking about Scorsese got his oh. Oscar for The Departed. But I can't argue too much with the way things ended up. I know. In the end, it's just a piece of metal. So I feel like this last question is going to be like asking you who your favorite Kardashian is, but having now measured the three most often cited gangster films as the best and three of the widely considered best movies of all time, which would you say is the best of the three? And by the three, you're referring to Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and Goodfellas. Correct. Godfather 2. Okay. I, I I really think that the whole fact of the betrayal of family and the devolution, de-evolution of the family and the family structure and how power is done says a lot and is very... Shakespearean element, and so I thought Godfather 2 is the best of the three. Okay. I still personally think it's Godfather Part 1, but honestly, I think you can make an argument for any of the three, now that I've kind of come around on this movie. Well, Goodfellas does exactly that, which is, it. you know, the first half of the film is Godfather 1, and the second half of the film is Godfather 2. It explains the rise and shows the fall same time so so you're parroting back the thing that i told you like 20 minutes ago <laughs> yes it but it's it's a situation where they're eating their own which as a former criminal defense attorney i will tell you is the norm 
It is in within criminal elements, it's survival of the fittest, and whoever is the biggest, strongest, and the baddest destroys everybody else so that they remain on top. I'm assuming you don't have any remaining questions. Yes, I do, actually. Oh, okay. Considering how important Paul Servino was in this film and all of the other films, I would agree with the outrage after the Academy Award dissed him and did not put him in the in memoriam at the Academy Awards ceremony. I, 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 Is there a question in there somewhere? I, how can you, how can they justify it? Considering what he did in some of the films he did, I just, again, the remaining question I have is, is considering again, how good he really was in this film, which is really good. How you could just seem to not give him his due credit. I said it, I think, the week after when we did the podcast that if for nothing else, then he's a notable actor who's been in several notable films and is the father of an Academy Award winner. Yeah. I don't get it. But then again, I don't have to uh, take the responsibility of trying to produce and do that show. Well, and you don't have to worry about whether you work for Price Waterhouse and uh, end up mixing the envelopes. Remaining thoughts for the week? None. Um, I mean, it's getting, you know, the weather's starting to turn and in Wisconsin, you know, that weather turning can be on a dime and we can be 32 degrees one day and 70 the next. But I'm kind of looking forward to the summer and uh, uh, what we have on our schedule coming up. So I've now gotten to see both Creed 3 and John Wick 4, both of which I enjoyed. I think John Wick 4 might actually be the better movie. There are some parts to me that are a little bit missing with Creed 3, but, you know, it was still an enjoyable film. With the decline in the two superhero films that have come out so far this year and the notable hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth about comic book films and their decline, I wonder if this is the comeback of the mid-budget hit. I think to this point this year, we've already had Creed 3 and John Wick 4 have been hits. Cocaine Bear was kind of a hit, even though most critics didn't think it was a great movie. The critics haven't thought well of this upcoming Mario movie that's coming out on Friday. They did give it over or give overwhelming praise to Air. That's also coming out this weekend. But these are a lot of like small tier Movies, maybe some with some recognizable properties, but not like huge IP that are doing at least decent, even if the box office in total is down for the year so far compared to where we were pre-pandemic. It's coming back. It's starting to come back. A bit, but I think there are some prognosticators that are thinking that the theater chains are, at least the major ones are all going to be in real trouble unless we get some huge ticket movies coming up. And we've got quite a bit of some big movies still coming up. We've got a Guardians of the Galaxy 3, the last one supposedly of that franchise. And we've got a uh, Indiana Jones film. We've got a Mission Impossible film. We've got a Flash film. I mean, July is going to be heavy for some of these big movies. And I'm curious to see what the end of the year is going to look like, but 
I think there have been some decent films. It's just a matter of can they keep rolling out stuff when Hollywood doesn't seemingly want to take too many chances on anything right now. So I'm a little bit curious how things are going to go this year so far, but I'm at least enjoying the stuff that isn't the huge branded IP stuff to this point. Because given my comic book and nerd history cards, let's say, the fact that I still haven't seen Ant-Man or the new Shazam movie, when I went and saw both of those when they were in theaters, the first couple of them, I don't know, maybe that does say that uh, those are dropping or declining in, in nature if I'm not going to see them. I took your mother on the half-price movie night to see Champions. And in our local theater, it was in the mid-size. We had a seven-plex in town, and... Uh, Two of them are quite large, two of them are quite small, and the other three are mid-size. So it was in one of the mid-size theaters. And when we got there, it was I think it was a 6.20 showing. We walked in about 6.14, came, and we had a hard time finding a seat. Well, you also went on the busiest night in Rapids because everybody's so cheap. I understand, but still, I have not seen a theater that full in Wisconsin Rapids since before the pandemic. I have, but it takes a certain movie to do it. But I think you're going to start seeing this. We've seen this with Plan B, which was... um, Brad Pitt's old company. Yeah, he sold... uh, I can't remember to whom, but... Yeah, to a hedge fund. He still has control, but... Um, he does not have majority stock. Uh, Reese Witherspoon sold her production company. Woody Harrelson was the EP. He found this. It was a Spanish film originally. He had it brought in and, and uh, reworked as a vehicle for himself. And I think you're going to start seeing some stars, especially middle-aged stars, who are having a hard time finding vehicles because they're not going to be in Marvel films, they're not going to be in certain genres that hit. They're going to start funding their own projects in order to put themselves in and starring positions and take those chances because they want to do these films. I think that's going to be the route you're going to see as far as some of the mid-budget films. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Next week, we are discussing the film that won John Huston his only Best Director Oscar, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1948, written and directed by John Huston, starring Humphrey Bogart and Walter Huston. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page on our Greatest Movie of All Time podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 